Good morning. It's good to see so many of you here today. Um, It's good to see visitors. If you're a first-time visitor, we're so glad that you're here, and um, I hope that I'm able to visit with you a little bit at the end of the service. We are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews this morning, and so if you will take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, you'll find our passage on page 694. 694. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. And as you find it, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. This is the Word of the Lord. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Father, we pray that your word would have its full effect on us this morning. And God, we pray as the Greeks did when they came to Philip. We long to see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I love looking at my wife. I find her to be absolutely stunning. Their eating habits leave something to be desired, but to a lesser degree, I love looking at my children also. And there's a bittersweet emotion as I watch them getting older, but I still love watching them grow into the men and women that they're going to be someday. You all... I assume, have mirrors in your house, and at some point, you look at yourself because you love yourself, and you care about how you look. You may have a favorite movie or TV show that you love to watch, and no matter how many times you watch it, you still enjoy it. We look at the things that we love. We gaze at the things that we love. Why else would there be so many cat videos online? 
In 2015, there were an estimated 2 million cat videos on YouTube. They'd been viewed 25 billion times. In 2022, it's estimated that 15% of internet traffic is cat videos. We look at the things we love. And some people really love to look at cat videos. Christian, how much of your day is spent looking at Jesus? By that, I mean how much of your time and energy is spent reading and studying and meditating upon the scriptures and and how they all speak of Jesus? How much of your thoughts linger upon him in the course of your day? Do you speak to him? In the daily circumstances of your life, do you seek in everything to please him? The 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray Machane, he wrote, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Fill his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. You can never look at Jesus too much. You can never spend too much of your time thinking upon Him. Meditating upon His glorious nature. Considering all of His powerful works. You can never spend too much time looking at Him. He is our only hope. He is our only source of joy. He's our Savior. He's our King. Through Him, we have forgiveness of sins. We have assurance of pardon. We have reconciliation and justification before God the Father. By continuously looking at Him, we will be safe from sin. We have comfort against discouragement. We have peace and security for the future. We must look to Jesus. And we must learn to do it more. And by that, I don't mean that we look to to Jesus through some kind of meditation technique or by closing our eyes and imagining Jim Caviezel or Jonathan Rumi or or some other picture of who, who some artist considers Jesus to have looked like. What I mean by looking at Jesus is I mean we open up the Scriptures and we gaze upon the beauty of Christ in the Word of God. So that's why we're going back to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28 this morning. We're looking at it for a second time. We looked at it last week, but it was just kind of a cursory overview of it. Today I want to go back and I want to really look at it. 
because I want us to see Jesus more clearly and I want us to love him more. Last week, we studied the big picture of, of chapter 7, verses 11 through 28, that, that the only way that we can draw near to God is through a priesthood. There's no other way to approach God than through a priest. And last week we saw that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. The Levites, those descended from Moses' brother Aaron, they served in the temple at Jerusalem, offering animal sacrifices as the law of Moses prescribed. But this way of worshiping, it, it could never truly bring the people to unbroken fellowship with God. It could only serve as a temporary institution that pointed to something greater. And now in the Lord Jesus, the better, the greater, the superior has come. Unfettered access to God is now available. And so the old is replaced. That's the big picture. Today, I want to zoom in on verses 23 and tw- through 28, and I want us to just look at Jesus. I just want us to look at him. Not to, not to find something new or, or innovative, some, something that maybe you've never heard before, but to be reminded of something that's very old. Something that's old and, and foundational. Those fundamental things about Jesus that, that we hear so often that, that they just kind of just kind of move into the background. We're not stirred by them anymore. I want us to be reminded of these things so that our hearts will be moved. We're going to look at Jesus today simply because He's beautiful to behold. He's worth us looking at. We're going to see His superiority to the Levitical priest again in, in, in what He's accomplished But by looking at Jesus, I I hope that your hearts will be stirred to to love Him more. That your worship of Him will be more filled with fervency and joy. That you'll be reminded of the Gospel. That you'll be strengthened to flee from sin and to run to Jesus. And so in the six verses before us this morning, we're going to see four things about Jesus. There, there are so many things we could talk about, but, but just in these six verses, we'll look at four things and just be reminded of these things. And, and, and we want them to, to become fresh in our minds and, and fresh in our hearts so that they'll, they'll transform the way that we live. So we'll see that Jesus is our forever priest We'll see that He's our impeccable priest. We'll find that He's our once-for-all sacrifice. Then we're going to see again that He's God's perfect Son. So let's look at our text. And let's look at verses 23 through 25. Let's be reminded, Jesus is our forever priest. He's our forever priest. Look at verses 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's our forever priest. We talked about this last week, that the former priests were many in number. The the Jewish historian Josephus, he recorded that there were 83 high priests 
from Aaron around 1446 B.C. to the last high priest in 70 A.D. There were 83, but that there were many. Not just the high priest, but there were many. There were hundreds of them, and they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But now one comes who holds his priesthood permanently or in Uh, perpetuity or unchangeably. It's non-transferable. There were many who were prevented from continuing office, but He is one who, who stays in His office permanently. There's going to come a time when I leave this pulpit for the last time. I don't know when it will be. It could be today for all I know. And then someone else will take my place. The faces of the elders on our website will all be different within 30 to 40 years. And new faces will take our place. There's no permanency here. If you don't like me, just wait. I'll eventually be gone. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. He holds His priesthood permanently because he continues forever or or unto the ages. There were many under the, the old covenant, under the Levitical priesthood, there were many, but now there is one and the one is superior to the many. And this is a, an idea that, that we, we find in many places in Hebrews. You can go to the very beginning of the book. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Plural. There were many ways that God revealed Himself to Israel in the Old Testament. But, in these last days... God has spoken to us through His Son. There were many, and now there is one. And the one is superior to the many. Or chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There are many sacrifices that are offered again and again and again. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There are the many that cannot accomplish redemption. And there is the one. And the one is superior to the many. And so we see 
The same idea here in chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. There are many priests, and then there comes one. And the one is superior to the many because they die. There's a reason why there are many. It's because they live, they live to a certain age, and then they die, and they're replaced. They live, they die, they're replaced over and over and over again for a thousand years. But one comes who supplants them all because he continues forever. He's the one who died. And yet he tells John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am alive forevermore. His death on the cross was not for his sins, but rather he died as a substitute for his people's sins. And God raised him up And he will never be subject to death again, but instead he holds the keys to death and Hades. And so he's described in chapter 7, verse 16, as the one who has an indestructible life. Death can never touch him because he has been crucified and raised. And this is not a metaphor. We're not talking in spiritualized language. He bodily went into the tomb. And he bodily came out. He was crucified in the weakness of his mortal flesh. But on the third day, he came out of the tomb in a glorified, indestructible body. He's raised in power and he can never die again. Consequently, verse 25 says, Consequently, because he is the one who has died and yet lives. Consequently, because he is living forever and has been raised to an indestructible life. Consequently, the author says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is able. He doesn't just try. He doesn't just hope to. He doesn't just do His best. He is able. The, the word is the, it's the word where we get dynamite. It's powerful. He is powerful to save. His work was not to make you feel better or give you an easy life, but his, his work is to save you. And He is powerful to save you. And He doesn't just save a little part of you. He saves to the uttermost. Perfectly. Completely. Not half percent. Not not, not 50% of of the work. Not even 99.9% leaving just a small percentage left to you. He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely those who draw near to God through Him. That's not good works that bring you to God. 
It's not a plurality of priests. It's not a pope. For those who draw near to God through Jesus, He is powerful to save completely. And the reason why He can do this is because He always lives to make intercession for them. What an awesome verse. Verse 25, if you don't write in your Bibles, make an exception. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 is worthy of all of our attention. Because he continues forever. Because he has died and he's been raised, therefore, he is able to save you. He's able to save you completely because He ever lives. And He ever lives to make intercession for you. This this is what Christ in His resurrected presence in heaven means. It it means that when, when God sees the resurrected Christ... Seated in the heavenly places. He knows that redemption has been accomplished. And that all of the the good purposes and promises that God has given to His people throughout the Scriptures, they will be applied to them. Next week, we're going to look at the New Covenant. And all of the, the glorious promises of the New Covenant to God's people, the church. And the assurance and the confidence we have that that not a single one of these promises will be left out for you is Christ lives in heaven interceding for you. Just as He ever lives, just as He is a high priest forever unto the ages, all of the promises are yes in Him. I love what one theologian said. He said, our Lord's life in heaven is His prayer. His presence in heaven means that all of God's promises will will find their completion for you, Christian. And so you may have fears, you may have doubts, you may have insecurities, you may, you may still be struggling with guilt from things that you did in the past. Are you looking to Christ? Are you drawing near to God through Him? Are you trusting not in your own works, but in the finished work of Jesus? Then take heart. He lives He lives. He holds His priesthood permanently. Because He continues forever and He always lives to make intercession for you, you can have all the confidence that not because of me, not because of my works, not because I have or haven't done something, because He lives, you can have assurance.
You can have confidence. You can have boldness. You can approach the throne of grace knowing that you're going to find acceptance and grace because Christ lives. Because he's your forever priest. You can know that he loves you. You can know that Christ asked of the Father that you receive all of the benefits of his cross and the Father answers all of Jesus' pleas. From first to last, everything you need comes from Christ. And you'll receive it all. That should change our outlook. That should change the way we live. That, That should change the... You who are slumped over because of guilt, look to Christ. There is full, complete forgiveness. You can know that all of your sins are forgiven and that you are reconciled to God because Christ lives. Because He's our forever priest. Secondly, He is, verse 26, our impeccable priest. I was trying to think of a word that would encapsulate all of the descriptive words that we see in this verse. And so I thought, impeccable. Impeccable means faultless. Or or it meets the highest standards. My wife married me because she has impeccable taste. Just making sure everyone's awake. Christ priesthood meets the highest standards. He's not like the Levitical priests. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's not like the Levitical priest. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. That's what it says in verse 27. He's faultless. He's perfect. He's impeccable. Look at that five-fold description. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. I don't think the author's purpose is to necessarily cause us to pick those words apart. I think that that rather we're supposed to stack them on top of each other like a pedestal, seeing the exalted nature of Christ and to glimpse His infinite perfections. For how can we fully comprehend His excellencies? He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. Do you see how the pedestal is being raised and and He's being lifted higher and higher and higher? He's exalted above the heavens. He's set apart and without any sin. There's not even a trace of a blemish. He's not like us in our sin, nor has He taken part in our rebellion and our guilt. He is exalted above all creation. We catch glimpses of this in two places in particular. You can think of Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Holy, innocent, unstained. Mark, he describes his clothes as being whiter than any launderer could ever make them. It's whiter than white. Can you picture it? Can you picture the, the, the majesty of it all? Now look over at Revelation chapter 1. Verses 12 through 16. Revelation chapter 1. John, the apostle, he hears a voice. And he turns around to see who's speaking to him. He says in verse 12 that on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like, you guessed it, a high priest. And he's standing in the midst of candlesticks because he's standing in what looks like a temple. He's standing as high priest amongst the golden lampstands clothed like a high priest. Verse 14 says, The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Didn't we sing it earlier? Jesus, there's no one like you. There's no one like him in his holiness, in his innocence, in the fact that he is unstained and unmarred by sin, that he is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. There's no one like him. Uh, this description, it, it, it's unlike anything else that we see anywhere else in the Bible. He stands alone. He's in a, a category all by himself. He's not like the Levitical priest. There, there, were, there were good priests, but there was no one like him. There was no one that these descriptions could, could apply to other than him. And the writer tells us, beginning of verse 26, that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It was fitting. We've seen this word before in chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting. It was fitting that, that, that the one for whom and, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word means proper. It's proper. Or it's right. It is proper. It is right that we should have such a high priest, holy and unstained and innocent and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. But how is it fitting? How is it proper to have such a high priest? Because those other priests were sinners. Those other priests were marred by 
unholiness. These other priests, they weren't innocent. They were guilty. These other priests, they weren't unstained. They were marred by sin and guilt. They weren't separated from sinners. They were just like them. They weren't exalted above the heavens. They were confined to this earth. There's a reason why they kept dying. It's because of their sin. And these sinners can't ultimately help you. Because who's going to help them? They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could even even think about offering sins or sacrifices for the sins of others. Newsflash. I'm going to fail you. I probably already have. I might even sin against you as my family can testify. If you come to a pastor or a Christian friend with, with a sin and you need help with that sin, they can sympathize with you as fellow sinners. They can maybe point to the Scriptures and help you. They can hold you accountable and they can encourage you. But Jesus can actually save you. Jesus can actually save you from your sin. Because he lived a perfectly obedient life to God's law. And he took our sin on himself on the cross. By faith, God gives us the righteousness of Christ. Adam and Eve, they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. Not great clothing. But God replaced their own attempts at clothing themselves and and hiding their own nakedness and guilt. God replaced it with the skins of a slain animal. But he has done even more for us. He has clothed the Christians in the very righteousness of Jesus. He's taken our sin, our guilt, he's placed it on Christ, and he's, he's taken Christ holy, innocent, unstained righteousness and placed it on the sinner. And when God looks at you, Christian... He sees the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus. It covers every sin. It covers every stain. And so we who are in Christ, who are are trusting in Him alone to stand before a holy God, God looks at us and He sees the righteousness of Christ and He declares, not guilty. We stand justified. That's why it's fitting. That's why it's proper. That's why it's right for us to have this holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, impeccable priest. Because when you have sin, He actually can save you from it.
Verse 27 tells us that he's also our once for all sacrifice. He's our once for all sacrifice. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The Levitical priests, they offered an enormous amount of animal sacrifices. Listen to Numbers chapter 28 verses 1 through 15. Just listen. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So every day, two lambs, morning and evening, morning and evening, every single day. On the Sabbath day, the seventh day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So every day, morning and evening, morning and evening, on the seventh day, you're supposed to offer two more male lambs. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Every month, at the beginning of the month, besides the day and the evening, day and the evening, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Also, ten tenths, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, and a quarter of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So, every day, morning and evening, morning and evening. On the seventh day, there's two more. And then at the beginning of every month, there is two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. Over and over and over again. And we haven't even got into the description of all of the festivals. Nor have we been talking about the individual sacrifices that had to be made. Nor have we talked about the Day of Atonement. Over and over and over again. The Jewish Talmud, which is one of later Judaism's religious texts, describes the priest waiting in knee-high blood. It describes in one place as 1.2 million animals being sacrificed in one day. So much for the children's Sunday school pictures of a pristine temple. It was a slaughterhouse. And the priests were butchers. 
And these sacrifices, they occurred day after day after day after day for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But as opposed to the many, there's the one. These Levitical priests, they offered daily sacrifices. He offered up a one a once-for-all-time sacrifice. They offered animal sacrifices. He offered up His own body. His death on the cross, it wasn't merely an example of the cruelty and injustice of the Romans. It, it wasn't just a, a, a description of, of the injustice of the Jewish leaders. It was a sacrifice. Romans chapter 3, verses 23-25, through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfactory sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Like the ram that God provided for Abraham instead of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, God provided a spotless lamb to be a substitute for sinners. But this lamb wasn't another four-legged beast because the debt of sin is owed to God by man. And so only man can atone for the sins of humanity. But sinful man can't atone for his own sin. And so God, in His grace and His mercy, He sent forth His own Son who took on flesh and He served as a substitute for sinful men. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the sacrifice accomplished the redemption of all God's people. It actually worked. He is powerful to save. And he he saves through his blood. His blood that atones for every sin. I can't wait for us to get to Hebrews chapter 10. So look over there. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We, we already looked at it, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over and over again. Why do they have to offer these same sacrifices every day, every week, every month, every year? It's because they never take away sins. They never take away sins because the blood of a lamb cannot atone for the sins of a man. The, the blood of a bull cannot atone for the sins of a man. And so we read, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There were many sacrifices made by the Levitical priest. But Christ has offered a once 
for all atoning sacrifice. It actually works. It actually atones. It actually forgives sins. In contrast, listen to question number 1,367 of the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Mass. This is Roman Catholic Church doctrine, teaching. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, that's the Mass, the bread and the wine, are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Let me summarize that for you. When the priest in the Roman Catholic Church perform the Mass and they break the bread and they give the cup, they're saying that this is the same sacrifice as Jesus on the cross. It's just unbloody. And so every time they offer the Mass, they're offering Jesus again and again and again, and they say that this sacrifice is a propitiation. It's satisfying God's wrath again and again and again. This is blasphemous. And it is complete nonsense when compared with Hebrews 10 and 7.27. I came across a priest's writings this past week. A blog post in which this priest said, Every time I celebrate the Mass, I consummate my marriage to my bride, the church. And we could stop right there and talk about how blasphemous that is. My words become the words of Christ as I am an alter Christus, which means another Christ. Recite the words of institution. This is my body, which is given up for you. This is not a symbolic gesture. It's the reality of my spiritual fatherhood. My body belongs to the faithful and in the reliving of the Lord's passion, I give of myself as Christ did on the cross. Those are the literal words of an antichrist. He claims that the church is his bride and that in the offering of the mass, he is taking the place of Jesus. Christ's substitutionary death to satisfy the justice of God demanded against your sin is a once-for-all-time single sacrifice that actually accomplishes redemption for all those for whom it was made. They offer sacrifices repeatedly, day after day. The Roman Catholic priests, they offer sacrifices day after day. They can never take away sin because Christ has died once for all time. A single sacrifice. And by His death on the cross, your sins are forgiven. You don't need to wait for a priest to absolve you. 
You don't need to wait for a priest to perform hocus pocus over a loaf of bread, bread and a cup of wine for you to know your sins are forgiven. Look to the cross. Look to the Messiah who has died. And he's been raised. Christ died for his people, particularly and definitely His blood satisfies entirely God's wrath. And so we can sing with all of our hearts, without any any qualms, without any reservations, Jesus paid it all. What does this mean for you? Trust. Believe on Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Right now. Right now, you can do this. Too many people, they think that they have enough time to believe some other day. Or that they have to to wait for some super spiritual moment in order to believe. They, They have to feel just right in order to believe. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. If you recognize your sin... And your need for a Savior. Come to the Lord Jesus even right now. Even this moment, you can pray to Jesus to save and forgive you. You don't have to wait for some super spiritual, super emotional moment. Acknowledge your sin and cry out to Jesus to save you. Martin Luther said either sin is lying on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. And if it is resting on Christ, you are free. He is our once for all sacrifice. But finally, verse 28, he is God's perfect son. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints his son who has been made perfect forever. In case you've forgotten who we're talking about, this forever priest, this impeccable priest, this once for all sacrifice, who is he? He is the Son of God. Go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 8, it says, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He is the eternal Son of God. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He was before all things and all things were made through Him and all things were made for Him. He is worthy to receive all power 
and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. But he is also in his incarnation, the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah, the true king of Israel. He is truly God and truly man. Not a demigod. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He is fully God in all of his divinity. And he is fully man in all of his humanity. But what does verse 28 mean when it says that he's been made perfect? He's not like those other priests who are appointed in their weakness, in their sinfulness, in their dying. He is a priest who God has made an oath to. A son who has been made perfect forever. What does that mean, he's been made perfect? Because we've already seen he's holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. How can he be made perfect? It means mission accomplished. That's what it means. It means mission accomplished. It it means chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It means chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He came in the flesh with all of our weaknesses. He he experienced hunger and, and thirst. He experienced exhaustion. He learned to trust God. He learned to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. He learned to resist temptation, to obey even to the point of death on the cross. And as such, he has been made our perfect high priest. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize with our temptations. And he is consequently able to save us to the uttermost because he has been made our perfect high priest. He's not a high priest that is aloof. He's not a high priest that that only knows hypotheticals. He is our great high priest who entered into our humanity and has experienced our weaknesses. He's experienced our temptations and he has overcome all of them and he is able to save us to the uttermost. That's what it means that he has become and been made perfect. There's no one like him. You've not come to another weak person so beset by his own weaknesses and sins that he can never help you. You have come to the Son 
who has been made perfect forever. And in him, you'll find that he has everything that you will ever need. You will find nothing lacking in him. You will never experience something in this life that you say, no one understands because Jesus understands. Because Jesus knows. He's not just another priest. He's not just another helper. He is the perfect one. He can perfectly sympathize with you. He can perfectly save you. He can perfectly help you. And He will perfectly bring you home to God. Does this not change the way that we live? Does this not affect our worship? Do we still sit here and hear these truths from God's Word about Jesus and our hearts remain unstirred, unmoved? They're cold and lifeless. Do you not feel your heart warming to love Him more? To serve Him more? To trust Him more? Is there any temptation that you'll face that you say, I don't know how I'm going to overcome this? Is there any trial, any tribulation? Is there any outside pressure? Can the government do anything to you if you know you have a forever priest? You have an impeccable priest. You have a once for all sacrifice. You have God's own perfect son. He's yours. He's yours. He's not, this is not hypothetical. This is not, well, I hope one day I can get close to this one. You have him. Sneak peek into chapter 8. Look at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. This is not wishful thinking. Christian, you have him. You have him. He's yours. And you belong to him. What greater encouragement and comfort can we have? This is why the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is, That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What's your only hope in life and death? You belong to Christ. He belongs to you. Charles Wesley, we sing many of his hymns. He wrote a hymn called Arise, My Soul Arise. Listen to these words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. 
They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive, oh forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father cry. We look at what we love. We look at what we love. We spend our time thinking about the things that we truly treasure. Church, I pray that we will treasure Christ. I pray that we will love Him more. And that in loving Him and treasuring Him more, we will look to Him. For He is beautiful to behold. Let's pray together. Father, my paltry words are nothing. How can they ever truly describe the infinite beauty and worth of Christ? God, I pray that your spirit will take your word, cause us to understand, cause us to see with new eyes to understand and and hear with new ears and new minds. God, may we love Christ more. And in loving Him more, may all of our worldly desires and treasures, may they simply fade into the background. God, how can we create new hearts? Salvation belongs to you. Pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ. For those who even today, they still, they they hear with their ears, but their hearts remain cold. Father, I pray that you would create in them new hearts. Create in them a right spirit. Grant them repentance and faith. And I pray for all of us that we will behold Christ. And that in beholding Him, we will love Him. And in loving Him, we will obey Him. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.